This episode is sponsored by ByHeart. And I feel like I need to preface what I'm going to say with this. I'm a huge advocate of breastfeeding. Anyone who knows me well knows that nursing is something I believe in. And all five of our biological children were breastfed until they were 19 to 23 months old. However, we also have fostered and adopted, and I've been so grateful for formula companies in those situations. I'm also grateful for formula companies because our last two biological children, I really struggled with my supply and did all the things, spent so much time and effort, and just was never able to produce enough for them to be able to gain weight and not be hungry. And so I was so grateful for companies like Byheart. Byheart is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. Using the latest in breast milk science, Byheart created a clinically proven, easy to digest infant formula that's made with organic, grass-fed whole milk, certified clean ingredients, and features a patented protein blend that gets closest to breast milk. They're made with certified clean ingredients. It has no soy, corn syrup, GMOs, or palm oil. Curious about Byheart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com forward slash podcast with code crystal for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. So go to byheart.com forward slash podcast and use crystal to get your welcome offer. Welcome to the Crystal Pain Show, where we help you embrace your life right where you are and give you practical steps to get to where you want to go. Whether you are in your car, folding laundry, cooking, cleaning, or maybe even just enjoying a cup of coffee and a few minutes of quiet, we're so glad you're joining us today. Here's your host, wife, mother of four, foster mom, entrepreneur, and author, Crystal Payne. Welcome to another episode of the Crystal Pain Show. Y'all, I am so excited today. I have been looking forward to this interview for a number of weeks. I get to have David Thomas in studio today, and we're going to talk about this topic that so many of you are going to want to just lean in, get your pen and paper out, listen up, because it's about raising emotionally strong boys, or I really feel like raising emotionally strong children or learning to be emotionally strong as parents or as individuals, even if you don't have kids. Maybe you work with children, maybe you have a niece or a nephew, someone in your life, or you just want to learn how to be more emotionally strong as a person. So um, David, you have this new book that is out. It just came out in June called Raising Emotionally Strong Boys, Tools Your Son Can Build On for Life. And I'd love for you to just start by introducing yourself to my audience. I would love to. And first and most, I want to say thanks for having me. Mm. It's so good to get to sit and have a conversation with you. And I am, by introduction, uh, a proud son, father, husband. I always love to start there before I talk about what I do vocationally, because those are the things I'm the most grateful for, but also really grateful that in addition to those roles, I am the director of family counseling at a place called Daystar Counseling Ministries in Nashville, Tennessee, and really thankful that over the last 25 years now, I have had the great privilege of working with a lot of kids, adolescents, and families in that space. We serve just the pediatric population, so that's our whole focus, and we do the work a little different in that we're in a house rather than an office building 
the most sought after therapists in our practice are five therapy dogs, all the humans. We're in low on the pecking order. <laughs> and even that is maybe a reflection of how we do the work different too, that if, if anyone listening has ever taken a kid you love to counseling, if you've ever gone yourself, it can be a really overwhelming experience. And so we try to do as much as we can to make it feel safe and disarming. And I work with this incredible team of people, canines and humans, and have learned so much just being in close proximity to some folks that I think are just some of them, not just greatest clinicians, but greatest human beings I know. And and then the privilege uh, of just sitting with families for 25 years and hearing them tell their stories. And so it's out of that work that I have had the opportunity to write some books and travel around the country and speak on those things. And grateful I get to be in conversation with you about it today. Is this something that you always saw yourself doing? Like, was this your dream job? You know, I would say yes and no. Mm -hmm. Yes, in the sense of, I think I have, if I trace back through my story, a lot of evidence of where I think I was being prepared for this work or made for this work or wired for this work. But no, in the sense of, I think I kind of ran from it for a while. Mm -hmm. And and I'm going to date myself, but I grew up, uh, I was born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s. And at that time, counseling just wasn't what it is right mm -hmm. now. And so I didn't know anyone in counseling growing up. I didn't you know, no, even know people who did that work. I grew up mm -hmm. in a really small town in the South. And so it just was not, we didn't have language or vocabulary the way we do now. And certainly didn't talk about mental health the way we do at this time in history. So because of that, I just didn't have a lot of opportunity to see what it could look like as a vocation or to see the fruit of people who'd engage that work and the benefits of it. So in that sense, I don't think I did. And I tried to detour and go a lot of different directions. I jokingly. Now, I look back and laugh that when I went to undergrad, I declared accounting as my major, which is just comical to me because I would rather do anything on the planet than do my taxes. So the thought that I was going to do other people's taxes for a living is comical. But, but you know, looking back on that, I think I just thought that sounds like a practical vocation. And I knew I was in close proximity to people who did that work. But my the summers of my college years, I worked as a camp counselor with kids all mm -hmm. through college. And I would notice that my colleagues would come and get me for the kids who were really homesick and they couldn't figure out how to help them fall asleep at night. And they were really mm -hmm. teary or kids who'd come to camp and maybe their parents had recently separated or divorced and they were struggling and uh, navigating that transition and something in me wanted to move toward those kids. Like it didn't mm -hmm. feel scary or overwhelming. Like I just kept moving closer and closer and talking with them felt really easy and natural. And I, I look back now and think God was preparing me all along the way to mm -hmm. do the work that I do now and, and equipping me and creating opportunity where I could do that. So really grateful to do the work. Have you seen a huge shift in, since you've been doing this for a long time, a shift in what parents are struggling with and what teens are struggling with? Most certainly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the things that bring folks to our front door are certainly the same today as they were 25 years ago. But I would say there are many things that have accelerated and, and seeing kids younger and younger struggle, mm -hmm. you know, on the front side of my work. I could have counted on one hand the number of kids, you know, pre-8 who were dealing with some significant anxiety. And now 
about every other family I encounter has an elementary age child who's struggling in that way, just seeing evidence of things more and more. Anxiety is now considered to be a childhood epidemic in our country. Our numbers are so high with kids. You know, the average age of onset is somewhere between six and eight right now with kids showing signs in the four to six space. So seeing some of the same things, but more kids struggling and kids struggling at younger and younger ages. Do you feel like there is a reason for that? Like what's at the root of that? I have a lot of thoughts on that. And and the research would certainly say that one of, this is always hard to say, and I want any parent listening to hear me being on your team. This is not a statement of judgment, but a great reminder for every one of us, myself included, that one of the key indicators of anxiety in children is anxiety in parents. Mm. And, and also where we always say to parents, one of the greatest gifts that we can give, perhaps the greatest gift we could give anxious kids is attending to our own anxiety, doing our own work. Mm. And I would say that's true in a lot of categories. Mm. But, you know, when I was, I mentioned the dogs, when I was training my Labrador retriever to become a therapy dog, at the close of the experience, the instructor said, okay, now when you go for your first visit after all these months of working with this dog, you were going to walk in the room for the first time feeling all kinds of things. And I want you to pay the most attention to him. We were all like leaning in. Okay, what was the most important skill we developed? And he said, I want you to pay the most attention to your own anxiety. Mm. Because he said, and I will never forget this. He said, because anxiety travels down the leash. And I remember hearing that and thinking, oh my goodness, if my dog could pick up on my anxiety, how much more my children could. And so that phrase has stayed with me over the years and and just a great challenge. Again, not a judgment or criticism I want to give to parents, but just a great challenge that we can't pay too much attention to our own anxiety and how it travels down to our kids in ways that I think we're not even aware. And I would say across the board to the degree that we've not done our work around anger, to the degree that we've not done our work around conflict resolution, whatever it may be, that all of that travels down to the kids we love. So I think Doing our work as parents is some of the greatest work we could, greatest offering we could give to the kids we mm-hmm. love. I have had Sissy Goff on the podcast and loved her book, Raising Worry-Free Girls. I have talked to so many moms and said, if they've come to me and said, my daughter's struggling with anxiety, she's just really struggling in school or with friends and give, I'm just always like, read this book, read this book. Um, you wrote this book and you were asked a while back, whenever she wrote that book, to write Raising Worry-Free Boys. Is that correct? That is correct. And you chose not to. I'd love for you to explain why. I'd love to. The The statistics would tell us that girls are twice as likely as boys to struggle in that mm-hmm. space. And knowing that reality, I wanted to speak to some broader hurdles that I see with boys in their emotional journey. Now, I certainly do a deep dive into anxiety and depression in this book, knowing that there are so many boys and adolescent young men who struggle in that space. But I would say the two primary concerns I hear voiced in my office consistently of parents of boys and adolescent young men is boys who have difficulty navigating anger. And boys who have trouble in general just regulating their emotions that, you know, they come up against a significant event in life and can just go off the edge of a cliff in their response. Or the other direction they go is underground. Mm. But one of two extremes, like I can't voice any of what I'm experiencing or it's coming out all over the place. Mm. And that to me feels like the most universal struggle I've seen in 25 years of doing Mm. this work with boys and adolescent males. And It is a part of why I share 
what are some really scary statistics in this book? And and sadly, these stats have been true for a very long time. Every year, the World Health Organization, the WHO, releases new stats, allowing us to look at how are we doing compared to other countries around the globe, you know, in terms of healthcare, in terms of finances, in terms of education. And I always go straight to looking at how are we doing in terms of serving the pediatric population and the news is not great. And then if we jump on up to the adult population, it's even worse. Mm-hmm. And adult men lead the statistics for infidelity, Internet pornography, substance abuse, suicide. In fact, the stat I include in the book, the current stat, which is just devastating to realize, is that globally, on average, one man dies by suicide every minute of every day, Mm. which is just staggering to me. And if I were to even look at those four categories I mentioned of infidelity, internet pornography, substance abuse, and suicide, the common denominator in all those is a man's effort to try to numb out or shut down whatever it is that he's feeling, make it stop in some way. And that speaks to that reality I see of going two directions, two destructive directions, and where I wanted to create a roadmap for a healthier path when boys come up against the discomfort of life Mm -hmm. that you and I know is just a part of being a human being. Mm -hmm. And discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. It's just something we're going to come up against in small ways and in big ways. And I want boys, adolescent young men and adult men in this world to feel equipped and prepared because, you know, what we have long done, we're certainly come a ways in this space, but we've got a long way to go. We just continue to message boys in the direction of suppression and self-reliance. It's Mm. like, don't feel, do it on your own. And Mm. Those messages are part of why I think men consistently lead the scariest stats that are out there. You know, those messages are being absorbed. And so I wanted to get on the front side of that. You know, I love that great Desmond Tutu quote where he talks about, you know, at some point we don't want to just pull people out of the river. We want to go upstream and figure out why are they falling in? And as I read and reread those statistics, that's really what birthed this book. It's like, I want to figure out what's happening on the front side. I want to quit boys on the front side of development because I have at this point in my work set with way too many adult men who are or families who are in the middle of a chapter of one of those four categories mm-hmm. I just named. And I see the residual of what that looks like when that spills out all over kids. And I just think I don't want more men to be living that story. I don't want more boys, mm-hmm. more girls to be living in the wake of that story. So that's really where the book came from. So raising emotionally strong boys, I'd love for you to define what to you is emotionally strong. What does that mean? I think it's important to define that because I think even reading the title, it would be easy with that phrasing, that language to think that I'm supporting suppression in some way. And, you know, maybe the best way I could describe that would be years ago, I mentioned growing up in a small town. I went back to my small town to a few for a funeral of a man I had known growing up, great man in our community who was an amazing father and grandfather. And I remember sitting in the church at his service and his family came up toward the end, right as they were going to take the casket out to head to the burial space. And I looked at his grandchildren standing around his casket and to the left was his six-year-old grandson standing next to his 14-year-old grandson. And right as they were about to walk out, his little six-year-old grandson just started sobbing uncontrollably. He kept saying out loud, I miss you. I miss you so much. 
And I looked at his 14-year-old grandson who had his arms crossed real tight and his lip was quivering and he was doing everything in his power not to show any emotion at all. And as we were leaving the service, some friends who knew I work with boys said, I bet you feel really worried about that little six-year-old boy, don't you? And I said, oh, not at all. I don't feel one bit worried about him because that little six-year-old boy is reminding every one of us what it looks like to grieve in a healthy way mm-hmm. when you lose someone you love. I said, I feel a little more worried about his older cousin who I think is working hard to try and not feel anything. And as I was leaving, I could hear people saying to that 14-year-old boy, you're being so strong for your family. Mm. And I remember feeling so burdened for that 14-year-old boy. And there's the message. And again, we say it in so many different ways. And I remember making a beeline for that little six-year-old boy and saying, you are so strong. Thank you for reminding every one of us here who loves your grandfather how important it is to show what we feel. Thank you. Just thanking him because I thought there's the opportunity right there that we want to equip boys to understand that's what strength looks like. Numbing out, shutting down, making it stop doesn't involve strength at all. And it sets the stage for some of the scariest things as we've discussed. So that maybe is the best way I could mm-hmm. paint a picture of what I think emotional strength looks mm-hmm. like. So do we start this, you know, when our son turns 13, like how, when do we start kind of thinking of, we want to raise emotionally strong boys. How do we go about that? I would say it starts at the front side of development. I really do. I think, you know, it's fascinating the amount of research we have around even infants' capacity to read a parent's emotional experience. I'd I'd encourage any parent listening, jump online and Google still face experiment. And this is this experiment that was done decades and decades ago. I remember studying it in grad school and it's been redone over the course of time. And you could find some evidence of it. But basically, I'll give you the cliff notes, kind of that um, they would bring mothers and infants, uh, young children into the space. And they would put the young child in a chair in front of the mother. And the examiner, psychological examiner, would signal the mom to interact with the baby and show a lot of emotion and make eye contact. And you could see the infant smiling and cooing, even kids who couldn't talk yet, in response. Then the examiner would cue the mother to look away. And then turn back with a still face, like show no emotion. And what happens time and time again is the infants, the young children would start to try and mimic what they had just seen done. They would coo again. Their eyes would get big. They would be Mm -hmm. trying to create a response in their parents. And when they couldn't, when all they could encounter this, they would go into distress Mm -hmm. and the child would start to cry. And again, this... This has been repeated time and time again. Nothing's changed with time in terms of how kids, as we're discussing, anxiety travels down the leash, are reading us. So I would say to parents of really young children, I want you to be naming your feelings out loud. When you're sitting around the table with kids who can't even talk, we encourage parents to use a feelings chart that you could download off our website, RaisingBoysAndGirls.com, with kids who can't even read and just be pointing to the faces and naming it. You know, I felt saying things when we sit around the dinner table. I felt sad today. I think I said something that hurt a friend's feelings and I didn't mean to. I want kids and I would say I want dads in particular because generally speaking, I think moms do a pretty remarkable job of this, but dads really naming their experience. You know what? I felt embarrassed today. I had to give a presentation to the board of directors and I didn't feel prepared knowing that that kind of reporting is landing on the kids we love. In fact, I'd even challenge parents when you're in the car 
today and you're driving somewhere and you're running late, that classic scenario every one of us knows as parents to say, you know what? I feel stress in my body. I wish we'd left the house five minutes earlier. I'm going to turn on some soft music and just kind of let that wash over me. At the next red light, I'm going to do a minute of deep breathing, like narrating our experience in the Mm. everyday of life, knowing that that's landing on the kids we love. So as early as possible, I don't think you could do too much of that. But I would want to say this for any parent listening who has a pre-mid or late adolescent thinking, I didn't do that on the front side. You will hear me say in the introduction of this book and all throughout, it is never too late. It's never too late. You can pick up right where you are. Some of my favorite feedback was I wrote a workbook to go alongside this book that is targeted at boys 6 to 12 called Strong and Smart. It's really just trying to put feet to more of the practices in the parenting book. And I had had a mom recently say, David, I'm going through the workbook with my seven-year-old son, but I'm using it with my 37-year-old husband all the time. (laughs) And I said, fantastic. That wasn't the first person I thought of when I wrote the workbook, but I'm thrilled when it works for anybody. Mm -hmm. So males of all ages. And I I really appreciate what you said in the introduction. I do think there's so many concepts in this book that I think benefit girls too. We all have to work through male and female, learning to regulate our emotions, learning to name our emotions more successfully. So I hope it's useful in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. I love how you say if we aren't regulated as parents, we're likely to shame, over-discipline, yell, or lecture. I hear from so many moms who they are just frustrated with themselves at being frustrated with their kids. And I always feel like when we feel that frustration rising, it's a red flag to us that there's something going on inside in our own heart that we need to work through. How do we as parents stay regulated in those moments and set that example for our kids when we're just feeling so frustrated. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There is a beautiful opportunity in my experience for us to narrate our experience where kids could see that. I think it's a gift to kids if they could hear their parents say things like, you know what, right now I feel really frustrated. I've asked you to do the same thing three times and you haven't listened. Like Mm -hmm. I feel tense in my body. Um, I feel warm in my neck and arms, you know, whatever it may be, narrating the signs and signals that your body is giving. I have the, in the early part of the book, what I call the three R's that are kind of foundational building blocks to being emotionally strong. And the first one is recognize and the second one is regulate. And so using those first two R's all throughout our exchanges with our kids. And I think it would be such a gift if more kids got to hear their parents say things like that. You know what? I feel really tensed and stressed right now. I feel like I'm going to be tempted to yell right now, and I'm going to take a minute and do some deep breathing or whatever it may be. I walk families through developing what I call a top five list of regulation strategies that Mm -hmm. we keep on the ready, that in the beginning we have hanging up somewhere as reminders for us when we're in dysregulated moments that hopefully would serve as a visual cue of, I need to do that work so that I can be the parent I want to be. Mm -hmm. And then I would add to the list thirdly, and so that my kids can see what it looks like on the adults they trust the most in this world, doing the work of regulation. The third R is repair. And when we don't recognize or regulate, we're going to need to do a little repair work, taking ownership and just saying, you know what? I responded out of anger. That's not who I want to be as a parent, as a person in this world. And so, you know, saying to kids, I should have checked my top five lists. It looks like I need to hang up the top five lists in three different rooms of this house. So it's. (laughs) easily accessible, whatever it may be, 
because it's not harmful to kids when we fumble the ball as mm-hmm. we're going to do as long as there's repair and we're working towards something different. Mm-hmm. So practicing these skills is is what it's all about. And I talk all throughout the book about how practice, though many of us grew up being told that practice makes perfect, it does not. Practice makes progress. It just creates more opportunity for me to get a little bit better at this skill building. And I would lastly just say to your great question, you know, I don't think this skill building, these skills are any more instinctive than riding a bike, swimming in a pool. Like we had to learn those things and we had to practice those things over and over and over. And let's take swimming, for example. When I was a kid, I took swimming lessons five years in a row and then I joined swim team and swam for the next 10 years. That's not something I tried one time, got down and then never needed to work on again. It was ongoing. If I haven't ridden my bike for a while, I'm really wobbly. And so these are learned and practiced skills no different than so many of the other skills we're going to learn and practice throughout life. But again, I think sometimes what happens is is we as parents, you know, often are guilty of just saying things to kids like, you need to calm down. Have we really taught them what it means to calm down? Do they have practical, concrete tools for doing that? Have I modeled that? Have I narrated that in a way that they have a good, clear sense of what it means, what it looks like? It's such a gift that we can give our kids when they see that we're still in the trenches with them. I I think so often moms feel like if I admit to my child that I don't have it all figured out, I'm somehow failing them. Right. When I feel like admitting that you're struggling is gifting your child so much more than if you were to try to pretend like you have it all figured out because we don't. Absolutely. And so then later on in life, I, I remember a time when my dad got really angry with me when I was 17 years old. I'd done something. He got really angry with me. And I mean, his anger was pretty warranted, but um, he came back to me the next day. And I, I really don't remember. I know he got angry, but I don't remember what was said. I just remember he was angry. But what I do remember is that he came back to me the next day and he asked me to forgive him. Mm-hmm. And just that is something that I will keep with me for the rest of my life, that acknowledgement of I didn't respond right to you yesterday and I'm sorry and will you forgive me? And it's very humbling as a parent. But I think starting that from the time they're little and practicing that so that as they get older, when it is harder for us as parents to go back to them when they're teenagers, but to go back to them and to set that as that's a practice that we do in our home, in our marriage, like in all relationships to be willing to humble ourselves because we are going to make so many mistakes. Absolutely. We are. And, and what a gift, you know, we're, we're communicating and all of that kind of exchange. Like this is what it looks like to be human. Mm. It's what it looks like to be an adult. This is what it looks like to be a married person. This is what it looks like to be a parent. And I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I just don't think we can do too much of that. And, You know, the other challenge I might give, and this may surprise some people listening, but I would also, to the self-reliance piece, encourage parents listening to narrate your experience of needing help and getting help. I think sometimes the assumption with parents, for example, in counseling is that I shouldn't be telling my kids I'm in counseling individually or maritally because that might make them concerned about our relationship or me. And it's like, no, quite the opposite. Like, it's helpful. And we're modeling, this is what it means to be human. This is what it means to need help and ask for help. And I couldn't begin to tell parents listening how many kids over the years have said to me who knew their parents were in counseling, hey, will you tell my mom or dad to go meet with their person? (laughs) Which 
I love for two reasons. One, I love that they know their parents have a person. And two, the sense of security and peace, I think, that gives them to know there's another person involved. So even if you're not in counseling, narrate your experience of being with friends. You know, two weeks ago, I said to my kids, how walked with Carter, one of my best friends, and he asked me a really good question that made me think. He asked me, what are you doing with your fear right now? Because mm. he could see evidence of where I was circling my fear. I was swimming in my fear. I was trying to control because of my fear. And so talk about the conversations you're having with trusted friends, with your pastor, with your counselor, with individuals in your life that are evidence of, I can't do this life on my own. We weren't designed to. I need other people. And so I want to challenge parents to even narrate that experience that I think models for kids. This is what it looks like to be a grown up in this world. And every one of us needs help. There's no one exempt from that. Mm. There just happen to be people who are open to getting help and people who are not. Mm. And we really only want to be in one category of that. I have heard from so many moms recently who are feeling at their wits end with a child, whether it's a seven-year-old or a 17-year-old or a 27-year-old, um, and just feeling like, I don't know how to help this child. Um, a lot of times it will be, you know, it's a son who he's just having major outbursts, super angry, um, and they feel like no matter what they do, it's not changing anything. It's not getting through. And I would just love for you to speak to that mom right now who she it's just feeling like it's too much. It's too overwhelming. And she just, she doesn't have what it takes and she doesn't know what to do with her child. Yes. I'd say two things. I would first say, you know, to the skill building we just talked about, what would it look like to see that response as a lack of skills and an opportunity to say, okay, there's just hard evidence on the table, plenty of opportunity there for more skill building that's needed, or even to the conversation you and I are sharing, you know, my comment about calm down, maybe it's that I just haven't given him enough concrete tools for what that looks like. So of course he continues to go off the deep end and have these huge outbursts. And, you know, think about everything we know about the architecture of the brain in this day and age. Like we know that the longer we wire and fire in the same directions, we develop these deep neural pathways to the degree that I'm learning and practicing new skills around that second R of regulation, I start to wire and fire in that direction. I don't need to go off the deep end as much. But if that's all I've been doing, of course, it's all that's familiar and we're creatures of habit. I would say secondly to that, and this may be a little hard for folks to hear, but stay with me. You mentioned our great friend, Sissy Goff, who you've had on the show. Sissy and I have been colleagues for decades and we talk a lot about when we teach together how this many years into this work, we have seen a consistent theme in every family, not just in some families or in most families, but in every family. In every family, I think every parent has at least one kid who pushes your buttons a little bit more than the others do, who brings about a bigger emotional response, maybe in you. And often, not always, but often it can be the oldest child of our same gender. And there is something about that kid that can feel like an extension of who we are. Or it may be the child who's most like you. Mm -hmm. And what happens in that situation is that we see evidence of things in that kid that we don't necessarily love about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And if we're not paying enough attention to that, we can end up parenting that kid harder, believing I'm going to parent that out of you. 
<laughs> as if that's even possible. And it comes from a good place. It's like, I don't want you to face a lot of the hills and mountains I did. I don't want you to come up against those hard moments. So I want to parent that out of you so you won't experience that. And we just can't do that. That's not possible. But unless we're paying attention to that, we could be harder on that particular kid. The one who's the extension of us, the one we see things we don't like about ourselves. And to that, I would say that's right back to why I think it's so important that we do our own work as parents, because in that moment, that's likely a lot more about me than it is about them. And that's not to say their outburst may not be triggering something connected to them, but it may be more about what's going on inside of me that's ultimately about me and where I may see myself there. So. That would bring us right back to, again, that reminder of, I just think it's a great gift that can change relationship. Thank you so much. This, I feel like I have a thousand more questions that I want to ask you. That sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not because as I'm reading this book, I'm just thinking of, we all need this so much. And I love how you not only give us inspiration in the book, but practical application, which I think is so important. And so for someone who's listening right now saying, I want more, I need to know, like, what are the steps to take? Just, you need to get a copy of David Thomas's book, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys. It, he says it, the subtitle tools your son can build on for life. And there are so many tools in this book, but it's not just tools for your son, tools for you as well. Cause probably as you've been listening to this, as I have <laughs> gotten my toes stepped all over saying, I need to work on this in my own life. And you were talking about narrating and I was thinking, you know, that is something that I am learning, but I want to do a much, much better job of that for my kids. And so often I just think it takes that humility to share what we're feeling and to be honest instead of just our, I feel like our default is to go back to, I'll just keep it all together. I can do this. I'm strong. I'm brave. And what we think strong is, is squashing down all of those emotions. And instead of giving our kid the gift of seeing that we have that too, we're working through these things and we are not all arrived. We don't have it all figured out. And so I just really appreciate your heart and you coming on the podcast today, sharing these things and writing this book that is going to impact so many families, so many parents, so many children for generations to come. And I was just thinking how you were talking at the beginning of you know these areas of how so many children are struggling now, but what a gift that you are sharing these things so that we can break those cycles so that future generations can know the tools and they have these tools at their disposal so that we don't have to see this continuing on and on and on. And so thank you. And I would just encourage everyone listening, go get a copy of Raising Emotionally Strong Boys by David Thomas. Thank you for joining us today. For more great resources, please visit crystalpain.com. 